It's the 20th of June, 2015, and this is episode 223. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts. Just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Today on Let's Talk Bitcoin, we're joined by Daniel Larimer, the founder of the BitShares Project and a good friend of mine. Daniel, how you doing? Doing good. How you doing, Adam? I am pretty good. So the last time that I caught up on BitShares was, I think, I think we talked about it over a chat maybe four months ago, but I really just haven't been following the project that much. I saw that the price had gone down for a while and I saw it's been coming back up sort of recently. I think that it would be better just to start at the beginning. Summarize for me, what is BitShares for people who have never heard this before? What is the problem that you are trying to solve? BitShares is a financial platform for doing all kinds of different financial smart contracts. It provides standardized smart contracts for things like contract of difference and bonds, escrow payments, all the things that are coming out in the cryptocurrency scene. We're doing them on BitShares. Okay, so you're doing all kinds of things that enable all kinds of things on BitShares. How's it been going so far? What happened in 2014? The past year has been very educational for us. We have learned a lot. Our primary smart contract is uh, bid assets, which are price-stable cryptocurrencies. They've got all the properties of Bitcoin, but the price stability of the dollar. And that's really been our bread and butter unique thing that really kicked off the BitShares project. And since then, BitShares has grown to encompass far more than we had originally intended. The bid asset experiment has been successful. We have maintained parity with the dollar, the yuan, euro, gold, and silver for the past nine months, even in the face of a bear market in crypto in general and BitShares specifically. But during this time, we have learned a whole lot. We had to re-pivot what we're doing. So what I want to talk with you today about is actually a new blockchain technology that's being produced by a new company, Cryptonomics. And I'd like to tell you a little bit about it and what it means for BitShares. So before we go into that, I actually do want to ask a little bit about the dollar parity and the pegged assets. That was always something, the pegged assets were always an element of the BitShares project that seemed like it was really high risk to me. And I hear you saying that it worked. But I'm wondering, did you ever achieve more volume? I mean, because it seemed like it's hard to demonstrate that these things work when you don't have a lot of use of the system. Is that system actually being used is my question, or is it just like technically it's a success, but nobody's actually using it? All right. So we have technical success in the sense that the assets don't go to zero and that they're still trading around $1. We haven't had widespread market success primarily because of liquidity concerns. Although at the present moment, you can sell $67,000 worth of BitUSD for $1 without moving the market at all. So we have a lot of liquidity right now at the $1 price because BitUSD is currently valued slightly more than a dollar. This is primarily because BitUSD is a financial contract that requires two different parties with different expectations and supply and demand will impact where the price trades. So in order for it to even be created, you have to have someone willing to speculate, willing to take out leverage 
that BitShares will go up in value. And so in a bear market, there's not quite as much uh, demand to leverage up on the expected growth. And there's more demand for people to hold a stable asset in a declining market. So at the moment, it's trading slightly above a dollar. We've taken a lot of the lessons learned from this experiment and figured out how to tweak it down to something that gives guaranteed liquidity in any amount at $1. That's going to be a major change in what we're calling Bid Assets 2.0. Great. I look forward to hearing about that. And one last question on this, uh, you know, how much of you know, that $76,000 is you or your company or some sort of official capacity, maybe not officially on the record, but how much of that is actual real demand and how much of it is you guys just trying to provide a market so the people who want to use it can effectively use it? None of it is us. It is you know, entirely from people who are short. They've been short for more than 30 days and therefore they're required to cover at a price feed, which is $1. The blockchain will not force them out. They will not force a short to exit for more than a dollar unless they have insufficient collateral. So these open short positions are the ones that are providing the liquidity. And that's sort of the heart of where we're going with BitAssets 2.0. Cool. That sounds like it's actually working. That's really reassuring. I I really wasn't convinced that uh, the pegs were going to hold. So tell me about BitAssets 2.0 or how do you want to go about this? You said that you've got some big announcements to make. So what, what's, what makes sense to talk about first? Well, let's talk about a new company we're forming first. Okay, why are you forming a new company? The BitShares developers have gotten together. We were all independently working just for the blockchain. And now we've formed a new company to build a new product, a new blockchain technology. We're attacking a different market and we're trying to monetize the blockchain technology that we've produced in more ways than just BitShares. Okay, so what were you attacking with BitShares and what are you attacking now? With BitShares, we were seeking to provide an open platform that provides the stable currencies and is basically a free to use, free software, open source, do whatever you want to do with it platform, basically an alternative to Bitcoin. But we've realized that the technology behind BitShares, delegated proof of stake, can be applied for private blockchains that corporations that want to run internal things. And we're looking at other ways of monetizing the blockchain that's internal, that's not public use. There's been other people that have come to us and want to do custom blockchain technology. And so we're using Cryptonomics as a general software development company that we do custom blockchain development that particularly customizations to the BitShares code base for alternative chains. So you had a lot of projects under the BitShares you know, banner towards the end of last year. I remember that you had consolidated like the DNS project and several of the other ones inside of the company. So what does this mean for projects that BitShares was developing? The BitShares blockchain has been self-sustaining and self-funding since the beginning of this year. What does that mean? That means that the stakeholders in BitShares can use delegated proof of stake to nominate to elect people to get paid, just like miners are paid in Bitcoin. Only instead of having to pay the electric company, it can pay for development. So the BitShares blockchain is able to hire and fund its own upgrades, its own maintenance, its own development. Cryptonomics will be one of the companies that is going to build and upgrade and enhance BitShares at the direction of the stakeholders in BitShares. We are specifically 
not the maintainers of BitShares. It is a community membership organization where the users are in control of their own fate. But our company does, you know, has all the experts on that particular code base, and we're available for hire to buy the blockchain to do various things. So your company, so the new company essentially is a participant in the ecosystem as opposed to what BitShares was, which was really kind of like the authority over the, I don't, I don't want to, authority might be the wrong word, but BitShares was the company that had the money. And now you're saying that actually it's the blockchain that has the money and the blockchain can hire this new company that you're creating, but you'll no longer be the, the primary kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Stewarding development. Right. We'll make proposals and, and we'll suggest things that should be funded, but ultimately it is the BitShare stakeholders who are in complete control over the destiny of the platform. And that is good for us. That's good for the stakeholders. And it creates an open system, right? Unlike Bitcoin, you know, how are we going to pay the core developers? BitShare's blockchain has means of doing that, has a means of accountability, and does so with a dilution rate that is far less than Bitcoin. So is BitShares ready at this point for you to step away and to have it not be something that, that your company, the BitShares company, is stewarding at this point? I mean, like, is it actually ready? Because the last time I checked, the wallet was not really stable to the point where I could use it. There definitely seems like that there are some issues that you guys are still working on. The BitShares blockchain is going to get one last upgrade. Well, Cryptonomics has produced a new product the new blockchain technology and BitShares is going to get upgraded to that technology for free. When did this new company form? Uh, we, we started this new company this spring. We started development on a new blockchain technology back in March. This was after the core developers realized that we needed to fix a lot of things in the initial BitShares protocol. And so we've come up with a new blockchain toolkit called Graphene. It's really pretty impressive technology. We are able to handle 100,000 transactions per second. Let that sink in. 100,000 transactions per second. That's more than the NASDAQ handles. They're processing 35,000 transactions per second. And it's able to validate and confirm transactions in an average of just one second. So this is a platform that allows all the features we talked about in BitShares, plus much more, and solves all the performance issues. The vast majority of the issues that people have been having with BitShares are a result of performance limits on old hardware, on machines that have hard disks because the disk I.O. has been very intensive. And we really sat down and tried to figure out how can we improve the synchronization speed so you can connect to the network instantly. All these things are hindering users, confusing users, and Bitcoin and other, other cryptocurrencies have similar problems in, in the fact that they need light wallets. The barriers to entry are just high. So it's an entirely new code base with an entirely test-driven development, really designed to address most of the issues that BitShares has faced. Okay. So 35,000 transactions per second, which is what you said is NASDAQ speed, or 200,000 transactions per second, um, that's a lot. And it's obviously much more than there is actually demand for that type of thing now. Usually when we talk about these things, we talk about transaction throughput, we talk about the ability of a system to scale. Doing something like that, where you have these very, very fast block times and you also have a, uh, or rather it's very fast to do that, these tend to be more centralized systems. 
Um, I'm familiar with the original version of, of delegated proof of stake, which involved up to a hundred different essentially signing nodes who acted as miners would. These nodes were elected by users based on how much bit shares they had and how much they wanted to essentially devote in terms of its voting power to getting that person or the, the, those groups of delegates elected. Mm-hmm. How are you scaling this without further centralizing it? Well, first of all, under DPoS, Delegate Proof of Stake 2.0, we have an unlimited number of block producers, which we're calling witnesses now. We've redesigned the consensus algorithm to separate powers into different roles so that the system is more robust and better defined in the regulatory environment. There's been lots of research published that show how these decentralized organizations, DAC is what I used to call them, decentralized companies, how they can be structured in such a way that they're legally compliant and understood. And the general consensus among all the high-powered lawyers is that a membership organization where the members, the stakeholders, are in direct control over the value and you know any investment, the outcome. They're basically partners in the outcome. Those systems are not securities. They're not regulated. They're free to use. So we wanted to separate the roles. And so we have block producers and there's an unlimited number of block producers, as many as the stakeholders are able to elect. So it's limited only by the attention span and desire of the stakeholders rather than in just 101 like BitShares had. Let's talk about the block producers. That sounds like they produce blocks. So what exactly is the role of a block producer and how does one actually interact in, the, in that way. I'm elected as a block producer. What am I doing? What type of software am I running? Is it any different? Do I need a different computer? It's the same software that anyone else who runs a full node would run. And keep in mind that the block producers are only the ones that produce the blocks. Everyone can participate in validating that they produce the proper blocks. So it's not as you know, limiting the number of people that produce the blocks does not reduce the number of people that are validating blocks. Uh, what you do is you run a server and you configure the server to be up 24-7 and it'll just sit there and run and produce blocks and you'll get paid for every block you produce. So how is it determined when I'm producing a block versus when I'm not producing a block, especially in a system where the blocks are so fast? There's a deterministic order where once per day, each and every producer is introducing some entropy, some randomness. So you have everyone takes one turn and then you shuffle and everyone takes another turn and you shuffle and then once per day the votes are tallied up. The new set of witnesses, the block producers, is established for the next day and then it's deterministically round robin. Is the order made public? Yes, the order is public. Is it possible for me to game the system where I know I'm going to get a block and so I configure my, you know, my system to do something that is outside of the normal parameters? What I mean, is it possible for a block creating participant who knows they're going to be creating a block at a certain window of time to compromise it? If you know you're producing a block, you can only do two things, either produce a block or not, include transactions or not. You cannot do arbitrary rules. You cannot change the consensus protocol. You cannot do invalid transactions because if you do, the person who comes after you won't build on your block. So you can only produce valid blocks or not produce anything at all. And if you don't produce blocks on your turn, then that's a measurable statistic that can result in you getting voted out and therefore losing your income stream. 
so what else about the block producer? Is there anything else? Do are they? So you said uh, lose the income stream. So these people are elected by the people on the blockchain or people who are uh, stakeholders within your system, and then they are paid a fixed amount. Or I mean, like, is there a set amount of money that somebody is paid for this role? What is that amount? Under DPoS 2.0, all blockchain parameters are actually configurable by the consensus process itself, including block interval, block sizes, and the pay rate for the block producers. All those things, I can't tell you what they are, but in general, the pay rate needs to be enough to compensate the block producer for the time and hosting costs that they put into it at a reasonable profit. So it should be profitable to be in this role, but it won't be obscenely profitable. Obviously, the stakeholders have a financial interest in minimizing the expense of operating the network. And the witnesses have financial interest in making money doing the job. And so the market will establish a fair price for that. We've covered the block creators. What's the next role? You said there are three. Yes, there's three roles. The block producers, what we're calling delegates now, and in delegated proof of stake, delegates have a special role of only proposing changes to the blockchain parameters. They're honorary positions. They're not paid. And they are held by people that have financial interest in the outcome of the blockchain. In the, you know, they depend on what the fees are. All the fees are deterministic under this system. So you don't have to guess how much you have to pay for a transaction. You know exactly how much you're paying. And it's the delegates who get to propose changes to this. After the delegates vote on a proposed set of changes and submit the proposal, basically a multi-sig among the elected delegates. The shareholders, stakeholders, have a two-week window with which they can vote out any delegate for if they don't like the proposal. Otherwise, the parameters take effect. This is really geared towards solving the problem of, you know, should Bitcoin increase the block size? Well, now delegates can propose to increase the maximum block size. It's in agreement with all the stakeholders that change will take effect and no hard forks have to be implemented. No changes to the code need to be distributed. It just happens. The fees can be adjusted to account for changes in the valuation of the bit shares themselves and so that they're always competitive. Uh, the third role is workers. Workers are elected and they, they get paid each day from a limited budget on a per daily basis to do things for the blockchain, whether that's implementing new features, providing support, doing market making activities, whatever it may be, these are the workers that get paid. They can set any pay rate, they can set a vesting period for the money they receive, and the stakeholders can approve them, and they can also approve to placeholder workers that just don't refund the money. So that gives the stakeholders complete control over who the money is spent on and what they're doing the workers don't have any control over blockchain policy, which protects them. The delegates have no direct control over the blockchain parameters because they can always be vetoed by the stakeholders. The witnesses are completely neutral. You know, they're hired to be neutral. All they do is they're observing just like a notary. Hey, a transaction was broadcast and I included it at this timestamp. They are not supposed to get involved in the politics of blockchain parameters or setting fees or any of these other stuff. They're just there to do one job and to be neutral. That protects the witnesses. 
So we've really tried to structure this to divide roles and responsibilities to give a strong, safe regulatory environment for all the participants in the system. Okay, so all three of these different roles are elected, and they're elected by the broad pool of people who actually have some of the base BitShares token, right? That is the that that is the equivalent of votes in this system, and you don't spend them. You essentially just like you have an amount of influence imbued into them, and you can point that influence at this guy over here. Or you can point that Correct. influence. You can at point else. your influence at any number of different people, and it uses an approval voting system. Okay, so we've got. The workers on one side. Now, the workers are analogous to the the developers, right? Developers, marketers, really any sort of thing that would be a paid position right now. If you guys were doing it through BitShares, you're imagining that all of these people essentially become or maybe organizations could even become workers in this system. And then that organization might employ developers or something like that. Is that where the development goes? And a key thing here going forward all hard forks or changes to the consensus protocol itself must be contingent upon stakeholder approval. So if the developers implement some new feature before that hard fork can take effect, it must hinge upon the stakeholders approving it in the system. So rather than saying when we hit some block number or when we, you know, so many nodes upgrade, it takes effect, it's contingent on the stakeholders. That protects the developers because the developers don't want to be in the business of determining the fate or being liable for operating the network. It's interesting. I was having a conversation the other day with a friend who was telling me that with regards to the block size debate that's going on in the Bitcoin community, the degree to which Gavin has a difficult time of getting the change that he wants passed is the equal and opposite of how much control he actually has over it. And control is basically analogous to responsibility. Because if you have control over something and you have, you know, it's like, and it's against the law or something like that, you have certain responsibilities to follow that law. But if you're not responsible for it, then the and you can't do anything about it, then it's very difficult to hold you liable for it. So it sounds like you've kind of taken that concept and tried to apply it to the whole ecosystem. And, and I mean, certainly the, the people who are being most removed from power, it seems like, is you guys. Like you, you will retain something because you have status and reputation and obviously built this core system and are going to be a big part of the ecosystem. But you've taken away your ability to actually make changes unilaterally, which I, I got to say, I, I think is a great idea. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, we, we started out with that with the delegates and bit shares. But, you know, with DPOS2, we really separated out because if you put too much power in one hand or one role, then that position gets a lot more liability associated with it rather than if you divide it up. And what we didn't want to have happen is that the elected delegates to be perceived as omnipotent board of directors that can hard fork at will and they're getting paid and so on and so forth. So that creates all these conflict of interest. By separating it out, we really improve the regulatory environment for every participant. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. One of the major things that we realized is really hard to fund marketing and development and, and growth with paid workers. There's no way to assess, you know, did this worker bring in the user or did some other worker do it? You know, who's causing the ecosystem to grow? That's a really difficult measure. So there's actually another role in this blockchain besides the workers, the delegates, and the witnesses 
And this is the referrer or the register. The BitShares blockchain, now powered by Graphene, will have a built-in referral program where if you sign up a new user, you get 80% of all their future transaction fees. So if you register a new user, if a user uses your code or your URL, how, do, how does that exactly work? Do they like type in your username as a referrer or are there links or I assume you can have all those options? Well, if you take an example of uh, blockchain.info, your, your hosted wallet provider, a user comes to your website, they sign up and they create their public key. That website is the one that has to register your public key to your username. Usernames are a feature of BitShares. Every account is given a human-readable name, makes it easier to use. You, know, you have to pay a transaction fee to actually map the name to the public key for that account. And whoever pays that fee, they're the person who registered the user, and they are the default referrer for the user. Because in order to get into the system, you have to know someone who can sign up your account and send you the money. So just thinking through what you just said, does that mean that if I don't have a referrer and I um, and I just register myself and I register my own nickname, which is what I basically did uh, when I was signing up for the wallet initially, would I get would I be the default referrer for myself and so get 80 percent of my own fees? Part of the challenge of designing a referral system for a blockchain is how do you prevent abuse? How do you make sure that it's unique? And it comes down to this. In order to be an account capable of receiving referral income and making referrals, you actually have to upgrade your account to what we call a member. And when you're a member, the cost of upgrading to a member is, we're still working on this, but we're thinking it's going to be about $100. And when you're a member, you get 80% off of your own transactions and you qualify to refer other people. If you're not a member, you pay the regular transaction fee, but you don't get 80% cash back to yourself. Okay. So you're thinking more that this is going to be like, uh, like you said, for wallet providers, people who are abstracting away the BitShares client and doing stuff on on their behalf. It makes sense there. They would definitely $100, no problem to get that sort of thing. Um, And I can also see like evangelists, maybe like myself, who recommends, you know, different types of products that are interesting to people. Like it might be worth it to me to do it if I'm going to be referring a lot of people, but somebody just generally speaking, probably it's not going to make sense to them to spend hundred dollars upgrading their account. So they'll just go with the basic thing. Yes and no. If you're an above average user, you can upgrade your account simply to get an 80% discount on your transaction fees. If you're going to do a lot of transactions, because BitShares isn't like Bitcoin where all we have is transfers. We have market operations and a whole lot more things to do that you're going to be making more transactions than you make with a typical cryptocurrency. So if you're an active trader, a day trader, a speculator, you're someone like that who's doing a lot of these things, the transaction fees will add up, particularly because we have a new pricing model for the blockchain, part of making the system sustainable. And that's been a real goal here is from the beginning of BitShares is make it profitable, right? Make it economically viable. So If you're just a regular user, you're going to pay transaction fees that are cheaper than centralized exchanges, cheaper than PayPal and Dwala, more expensive than typical cryptocurrencies, which have unsustainable fees if you're factoring all the costs associated with growing the ecosystem and paying for development and all those other things. But if you upgrade to a member, now your fees are back down on par with all the other cryptocurrencies. 
Interesting. So tell me what kind of ballpark are we talking about for fees? Because when I think of Bitcoin fees right now, the calculation in my head says about three cents each. That, that's about what I pay for a transaction. So are you saying like an order of magnitude, like 30 cents, and then it would pop back down? Dwala is 25 cents and we want to undercut them. So we're going to target 20 cents for a regular user. If you upgrade your account, it'll be four cents. The reason why your system charges greater prices is because you're focused on sustainability. And so what's happening to that transaction fee? I understand that if I have a referrer, you know, uh, 80% is going to go to them and 20% goes to the network. If I'm not, then just all of it's going to go to the network. So what does the network do with it? What, where does that go? The network uses the income it generates to pay for the witnesses and the workers, as well as to provide a return to the stakeholders. Sure. So is that the entirety of, uh, of the funding that goes into that? It just it all comes from transaction fees and then feeds back around right into your uh, larger delegate system? Or are you also like, uh, do you have inflation and you're also supplementing the payout with that? The system has a reserve fund that allows it to pay out at a rate that could be viewed as dilution or it could not, right? If you view Bitcoin, it's got, got something like 13 or 14 million coins right now but it's got a max supply of 21 million coins. So you could claim that Bitcoin has a reserve fund of 7 million Bitcoins with which it's paying for mining. We've got a reserve fund of 1.2 billion BitShares to pay for growth and development of the ecosystem. And the payout rate of that reserve fund is less than the rate at which Bitcoin is paying out and is entirely at the control of the stakeholders. At any time, they could turn off that spigot and limit spending to income. Where has this 1.2 billion bit shares come from? If I recall correctly, there are 4 billion bit shares in circulation total, or that in total that were issued. There's, there's 2.5 billion today, and bit shares allows up to 5 BTS per second to be created to be paid to delegates. And that's been the case since we introduced the paid delegate system and did the merger with all the different BitShares projects last fall. Okay, so let me make sure I understand this. How many BitShares are actually in the wild? In the wild, there's probably 2.3 billion BitShares that are liquid. There's about 0.2 billion, you know, a couple hundred million that are still vesting uh, over the course of the next year. And then there's the five BitShares per second maximum. Right now, the BitShares stakeholders are only doing about a third of that. So only about two to three BitShares per second are being created to fund the various workers and delegates in the system. Okay. So so basically, you have this big reserve. Now, is this also the BitShares holdings of the BitShares company or of the Invictus no. company? Or No. No, it's not. Okay. So, so th- these are tokens that have not been issued yet by the protocol and they are just sitting there waiting to be issued. So you do have a bit of a runway on this. Correct. The protocol, we realize that there's various ways of looking at things. So what we're going with right now to explain it to people in concrete terms is that there's a fixed all-time high limit of 3.7 billion. That's the max that can ever be in circulation. The goal is to make sure that we collect more from fees than we actually pay out. And there's a limit how fast new BitShares can enter circulation. That is far, far below the rate at which new Bitcoins are entering circulation.
Hey folks, it's time for the magic word. The magic word for episode 223 is RAM. That's R-A-M. RAM. You've got until about 10 a.m. Pacific time on the 27th of June to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the interesting new features that are a first for BitShares or any cryptocurrency that are available in graphene. The interesting part to me, Daniel, probably the most interesting part of all the stuff that you've done, is this is the third or fourth reinvention at this point of the project. And I mean, like, and it's only been what? Two years. It's not even that. It will it'll be two years in November, if I recall correctly, yeah. from the initial launch of the first product. It's been two um, years from conception. Right. Two years from conception. <laughs> You've done a lot of a lot of stuff in that time. So before we get into the things that are just flat out new about uh, the graphene derived version, why? What were the problems? You, you mentioned that there were some speed problems and an IO problem. But what were the fundamental things that made you say, OK, we just need to fundamentally rethink this from the ground up? What, what, would it, what exactly did you learn from this initial version? All right. So BitShares tries to do a lot more than Bitcoin. When we did our, did our benchmarking and we were looking at, you know, where is the computer spending the time? Because it can take an hour just to replay all the transactions that have occurred on BitShares in the past year. And that's with a high-end computer with a solid-state drive. If you have a hard disk, you're talking a day. We've heard really terrible performance on these things just because of the amount of disk I.O. caused by randomly accessing all the different balance objects, the order books, you name it. And it's a real bottleneck. Bitcoin has been experiencing the same thing. There are two things that slow Bitcoin down. One is signature verification, and the other is access to the database, the level DB database. So we looked around, now what is the real bottleneck in these systems? Uh, before I get to the real bottleneck, I'd like to put some things in perspective. The BitShares blockchain, when we were re-indexing, was able to process about 100 transactions per second. That's just how fast we could take a transaction without having to do signature verification because we already had a checkpoint. So just like Bitcoin skips signature verification before a checkpoint, BitShares does the same thing. Skipping that, just trying to evolve the consensus state, uh, we were limited to about 100 transactions per second. And we got to think about how can we accelerate that? And a lot of people have been trying to figure out how can we scale cryptocurrencies to handle industrial scale operations? Generally, people think about trying to divide it up so not all nodes have to process everything. We looked a little bit closer and thought about the fact that fundamentally, the blockchain is single-threaded. One operation depends upon the next, particularly if you're doing anything with order books or general purpose scripted smart contracts, what might be valid at one point in time can be completely invalid after a single transaction. You've got to deposit before you can withdraw, those type of things. Which means doing these things in parallel is not easy, it's not viable. And what a lot of developers know is that when you try to do things in parallel, the overhead of synchronization can completely consume any and all benefits and even make it slower performing than a single-threaded solution. 
and we looked out there at what technologies were available and who's really looked at solving the high performance stuff. And we discovered the uh, LMAX Exchange, LMAX. They're a centralized exchange platform that does things like prediction markets, sports betting. And they had to handle millions of transactions per second. And they were kind enough to actually publish everything that they learned about what it takes in order to process millions of transactions per second. And they tried everything. They tried multi-threaded approaches. They didn't have to worry about the consensus issues that blockchains have, but they still had to process an order book and match orders at these speeds. And their ultimate conclusion was that you need to eliminate any and all blocking operations, disk IO, network operations, synchronization between cores, and focus on that core thread, core operations. And when you think about it, a transfer from one person to the other amounts to subtract one number and add a number. Not that many operations, and CPUs can do those very quickly. But when you start trying to add in all the other stuff that we put on blockchains, and you're going to and from a database for every read and write, that's what slows it down. So we keep everything in memory. We load it once at startup into memory. We keep it in memory. And when we shut down, we write the state to disk. Otherwise, everything is kept in memory in a single thread with some small optimizations. We're able to process. We benchmarked 180,000 transactions per second on an i5 CPU that's a couple years old. So let me make sure I understand what you're saying here. Um, You are saying that the way that Bitcoin does things essentially is whenever it needs to access something or it needs to make a change, it's doing that to your hard drive. And so because of that, you have to deal with, frankly, the speed that that you can write to your hard drive, the speed that you can find the correct spot and then read from your hard drive. And those things stack up as you do more of them and it becomes slower as you pile more on. So what you're doing instead is doing all of it just in the memory pool. Um, of the computer that it's on, which means that everything is just going to the RAM and you're only making the synchronistic changes to the to, to essentially the hard drive version when the program closes. That's the only time that you're writing to the hard drive? We also write the block when it comes in, but that's going to be done asynchronously without blocking the core process. So we basically took the architecture that LMAX uses to achieve millions of transactions per second and we applied it to the blockchain and optimized the... Uh, way we organize things in memory. And a lot of this focuses on eliminating unnecessary calculations from that single thread. And I think that this is where any VM-based solution, any virtual machine, that's going to dramatically clamp down on how many operations per second you can process. Uh, Doing any cryptographic operations, whether it's hashes, in that core thread slows things down. So we've eliminated a lot of the computations that happen in that single thread in addition to not going to disk. And so from what you've told me, it sounds like if the software were to crash kind of midstream when you haven't yet written to the hard drive, that also wouldn't really matter because the next time you start up the software, the changes you you are making were not to the local version. They were to the to the global ledger. So it gets fixed at that point. So there isn't even really a need to write to the hard drive except on the open. Periodically, maybe once a day, we save off the state. And then if something crashes, you load up the state from the day and you replay all the transactions in just a second or two. And now you're back to where you need to go. The benefit of being able to process transactions so quickly is that re-downloading or re-indexing is not a day-long event. We can re-index the entire BitShares blockchain 
in a couple seconds compared to you know the hours or days that it takes on the current system. And that's something that is specifically enabled by this type of architecture that you've been describing because you know new blockchains are always fast to to download and authenticate. Correct. So you're saying that this is this is regardless it will stay this fast as it Correct. grows. It does not slow down. The uh, lookup times do not degrade as the system scales. So what is the downside of this approach? There usually is a gotcha. <laughs> you guys found one yet? Well, strangely enough, we actually are using less RAM by keeping everything in RAM because the database caches are, we're, we're constantly missing and we had a ton of databases. And so there was a lot of extra RAM usage in the system. And we were trying to cache things to accelerate performance before. But now we did the calculations and RAM isn't really the bottleneck. We can support a million users with a gigabyte of RAM. If you just think about the data, it involves a couple keys, their balances, you know, whatever their order is. You know, assuming a kilobyte per user, which is a lot more than the actual data per user that you have, we can have a million users with a gigabyte of RAM. And you can buy computers with a terabyte of RAM for $15,000 today. The bottleneck is not the RAM. It's the internet bandwidth and it's the CPU. You're building technology with this that seems obvious that it's you know built to scale, <laughs> although it has not scaled yet. We want to build a foundation for BitShares and everyone else that allows it to scale. We want BitShares to be a decentralized exchange that is as fast as trading on the NASDAQ from China. In other words, you make your trade, your order is executed within one second, confirmed and ready to go. And that's what we have achieved with Graphene. There's no reason to use a centralized exchange when we have a decentralized exchange that is able to compete on performance. Interesting. You said that there are things built into Graphene that were not even really on the table when we were talking about BitShares. I don't know a thing about any of these, so let's go through them. All right, I'm going to just name a couple of them at a high level and then go into deeper depth. Uh, The one thing that I think is the most revolutionary one of the things we have is withdrawal permissions, which allow recurring payments without having to sign things. We've got the ability to do proposed transactions. So you can propose a transaction and accumulate all the signatures for it and have it applied later. We've got prediction markets, a collateralized bond market, and many new features for uh, user-issued assets whether you're an exchange that wishes to issue your deposits onto the blockchain or you're trying to be a company that wants to IPO on a blockchain, there are a lot of regulations that apply. And so we've upgraded the user-issued assets to support features like whitelisting and blacklisting of accounts to enforce know your customer regulations, the ability to restrict transfers to just between the issuer and the account holders so they can do market operations, but they can't do transfers from person to person because that would be money transmission. You'll notice that a lot of exchanges don't allow you to transfer USD from one use to the other. And we've added the ability to restrict which markets your assets can trade in. For example, an exchange that has both yuan and dollars might allow you to trade those against the cryptocurrencies, but you can't trade them against each other because you require Forex licenses to trade fiat currencies against each other. We created a bunch of tools in the user-issued asset space that we believe will allow all the exchanges and anyone who's trying to do anything with custom assets, custom tokens to do so in a way that complies with any and all regulations that 
may come out in whatever country you happen to be in. Now, all these features are optional and they can be revoked by the issuer so that they can no longer execute some of these options. But the blockchain gives you the option to be compliant from a regulatory perspective. So if Andreas were here, here's the question that he would ask. <laughs> uh, on episode 213 of Let's Talk Bitcoin, we recently talked about, um, about the FinCEN settlement with Ripple. And kind of what came out of that conversation was the position from Andreas that having these as options within your protocol is akin to saying to regulators, these are the things that you should allow and you should make everything else illegal because now there's an option to do it the legal way, whereas before there isn't. I don't necessarily agree with that. I'm curious what you think. I think the free market demands options and that there are legitimate reasons for these options that have nothing to do with regulators. We need to give the free market the tools to regulate itself, and that means freedom. Handicapping a protocol by saying, well, we're just not going to implement it, that doesn't stop the regulators from outlawing the entire protocol if you don't support the features. So if they're going to outlaw it, they're going to outlaw it. You might as well allow the network effect to build on a platform that has optional support for these things. Because if the platform gains support with the options and gains enough interest from banks that can use it because it supports those features, it's less likely to require it on a global scale. The concern here isn't that they won't adopt it. The concern here is that they will adopt it and then it will become obvious that you have the choice to use these tools in compliance or outside of compliance. And so if you have the option, it's very easy not to say the whole thing is illegal, but to say, just this part of it over here that doesn't comply with all of our onerous regulations, that part is the part that you're not allowed to use. Legal companies can only use this you know, fully compliant version. I, I think that's the, the broad concern, but I understand what you're saying. Too. You provide the option. The option always exists. They can always come down and say the entire thing's illegal unless you implement this option. The alternative is these banks and organizations use a system that's completely closed off from the start without the option to be free. And so... I'm all about giving freedom here in these options in order to help gain the network effect and prove that the system can self-regulate. And that's going to be huge. You know, if you're an exchange, you might want to prevent your tokens from trading against the competitors' tokens for whatever reason. Who knows? There are a lot of free market reasons to have these things. Web of trust is one of them. If you're a company, you might want to restrict who can own shares in your company not because there's a regulation, but just because you don't want to be partnered with some random person. So all these features have real uses demanded by free market individuals who would implement it on their own without any government requirement for it. And so that's my stance there. I want to talk about one of the most important innovations in graphene, and it's what I call corporate accounts. It's an entirely new way of doing permissions on a blockchain that solves the multi-sig issue. Uh, there's a lot of issues with multi-sig being difficult to use. It solves the collaboration issue. How can you have a company that has funds where control is divided among the people, the board of directors or some other means? And how can you make it robust and easy to use so that it can be secure? Corporate accounts. Like I got a technical term for it. And I call it dynamic hierarchical Threshold multi-sig. Dynamic hierarchical threshold yes. multi-sig. Okay. <laughs> so a bunch of words, adjectives thrown onto multi-sig. An account is a set of weighted keys 
and other accounts. So they're weighted in the sense that you can say, you know, I've got an account between you and I where I've got 60% and you've got 40%. That doesn't quite make sense with two people, but throw a couple more people on there and you can have shared ownership over a set of funds. And that account's not based upon your keys, it's based upon your account, which means that your individual account can have permissions that are based upon one of your keys and the account of a two-factor authentication provider. So in order for you to approve something for our joint venture, your approval has to be combined with your two-factor authentication on your own account. So permissions are really structured around people and hierarchies of organizations and partnerships. It's it's account-based permissions rather than key-based permissions. And specifically, when we're talking about accounts in the BitShares ecosystem, that's talking about the names that represent the the send-to address, basically, for a certain user's wallet. So you could send it to me at Adam. Right. So an, an account represents an entity that has control over assets and orders. And you know, it's the fundamental unit of control. It's an actor in the system. Okay. I don't just have one key. It is my identity that the... So is it just that my identity, literally the username and the information that backs that up is what's used within the multisig because it is itself a hierarchical deterministic type thing? Yes. Okay. So So this is like stacked multisig. Stacked multisig and the dynamic is because you can set it up so that it's not about the number of keys. It's about the the relative weighting of each individual. Actually, that's the threshold. It's it's a weighted with a threshold. The dynamic means... That you can update the permissions, you can update your key, you can add other accounts to your account without having to go and change every single organization you're a member of. Because right now, if you have a multi-sig, you know, if you're if you're in a part of a company and you've got your own personal funds and you've got multi-sig funds, and you think that your key has been compromised, that's part of the multi-sig set, you have to go update the entire multi-sig group. You got to get everyone involved in the company change the permissions by transferring the funds to a new multi-sig address just because one person thinks their key might have been compromised. It's dynamic because you can change your permissions, your keys and sub-accounts that are controlling your account without having to change the permissions that are associated with all the multi-sig accounts that you're a part of. So it's compartmentalized. Like I can use my keys basically or my identity to unlock and then make a change to just my part of the multi-sig agreement without impacting everybody else's. Is that how it works? Yeah. You change your account, the multi-sig doesn't change at all because it just points to your account. Uh, I see. Okay. So then I could, so what you're saying is if, if I was compromised, I could either do something like switch it to just another key that's also controlled by my identity. And so long as it's still my identity, nothing changes, right? Correct. Okay. And then the other side of that is that if I wanted to say, take that key that I have and split it into two different keys or three different keys, then I could do that too. Yes. Interesting. And when it's combined with the proposal, proposed transactions, it means that you can propose a transaction for an account and all the different parties can individually make transactions to add their approval to it without having to pass the transaction around and get it signed by everyone and then broadcast as a whole unit. Interesting. So then is, does that mean that there's like an approval address or is this something that will pop up in my wallet and I'll be able to see that there's been a request made of something? Yes. You'll be able to see in your wallet, here's all the 
proposed transactions for a particular account, do you want to add your approval to the transaction? Or, and this is critical, you can remove your approval. Another problem with multi-sig today is after you sign the transaction, the last person to have the transaction has extra control over whether or not they sign it and broadcast it or not, that not everyone else has. And you can't retract your signature afterward. With this system, you can remove your signature and it can expire or be scheduled to occur at a particular point in time. So there's a lot of flexibility here in doing these types of transactions. The username system in general has always seemed like one of those things where if it could work without, you know, doing the privacy leaks and, you know, with doing still the things that I want to do with token controlled access, then that really does solve a lot of these problems that are being handled on kind of a higher level in other protocols. Like in the LTB companion right now, you can type in a, a LTB username and if that user has an address associated with their you know, account, then it can go to that. But we had to create that at a much higher level than it sounds like you've done here. It's at a lower level and the account names are transferable, which means that they can be used as domain names. You know, the, the name itself is an asset that has value. So what's next? <laughs> what's the t- tell me about the... Uh, um, you had a couple of other things that you, just, you described there. Let's cover one of them right now. What, what's the most important besides this dynamic multisig? The bond market effectively allows you to short any asset against any other asset by borrowing one asset using another asset as collateral. And the participants in the market can set the terms, the interest rate, the holding period, and it works in a manner that doesn't require any third parties, it doesn't require any margin calls, anything like that. If it's paid off on time, you get your collateral back. If it's not, you forfeit your collateral. It's that easy. And as long as the parties agree that the collateral is sufficient, that's it. So you can look at it as a loan combined with an option to pay off the loan using the collateral. So when you say collateral, in the past, the BitShares system has only supported BitShares, if I recall correctly, uh, the, the native token of the platform for use as collateral for various things. Is that still the same with this? Or are you implying just, just by saying collateral? that it can be other tokens that are created within the BitShares ecosystem that can also be pledged as this. In the bond market, anything can be pledged against anything, even user-issued assets. And for the first time, you can have privatized bid assets, which means that if you want to produce a price feed of your own or with a set feed producers, you can create one asset backed by another bid asset, which would be very useful for having a bid asset, say the one of the stock market indexes, you can use that index backed by BitUSD and not be exposed at all to the volatility of BitShares. So there's a lot more flexibility in the uh, bond market. And with the prediction market, all it really comes down to at the end of the day is bid assets with the ability for the issuer to do a global settlement of all users at a particular price. So it was a relatively small change, but it allows you to create your own bid asset. It defines the collateral, so there's always enough collateral regardless of the settlement price. And after the event occurs, the issuer or issuers, it could be a multi-sig account with 30 people on it, can publish the result and do a global settlement. And now you have decentralized prediction markets all at the same time. And that's huge because that's an industry that there's a lot of demand for. And it's highly regulated. And a lot of U.S. customers are cut off from prediction markets. 
So this is actually moving from the current BitShares codebase to this new codebase powered by Graphene. So what does this transition look like for people who already have BitShares, uh, whether they're claimed or not? Because I know some people who still like have BitShares that they achieved through ProtoShares that haven't actually yet been claimed yet. What does this transition look like? When should we expect to be able to use this, uh, the new version? We have just revealed the existence of this new code base publicly and it's going through a public testing phase and once we are certain that all of the bugs and all the unit tests are passing and you know we've really been testing this from the ground up so we've got 90 plus percent code coverage already really thorough testing on this once all that's stabilized we're going to announce a snapshot date with 30 days notice to BitShares. And we're not going to announce that snapshot until we're certain that we've got a bug-free system. Then 30 days from the date of that announcement, we'll take a snapshot of everything in BitShares, all bid assets, user-issued assets, account names, every single component of BitShares. We're going to migrate it over to a new Genesis state and launch a new blockchain the same day. So there's going to be less than one day of downtime between the announcement and the rollover. And in the meantime, the current BitShares network will continue to function and operate. So if people want to, obviously there's a lot of detail here that I assume uh, if, if it's not available yet in writing will be available soon. We've gone over a lot of stuff here, but I think that there's definitely some detail I'd like to look into a little further. Where's the best place to actually get news and up-to-date documents about what's going on with BitShares? Because I've had a hard time in the past finding accurate information. Most of what we've been working on these past several weeks is just documenting all of this stuff, including the migration strategy. Most of the stuff that we've talked about here is documented in detail at bitshares.org. Great. Terrific. And when people want to download software, bitshares.org is the de facto place to go? Yes, bitshares.org is the place to go. What is next? I mean, so it sounds like you guys are pretty much, you know, you've waited to talk about this until you're pretty much done and feel like you're confident. And I I really, again, I appreciate that because so much does change in development. And you always think that things are easy, not just you I'm talking about, just generally with development. You know, you think things are easy and then you actually get into it and it's always more complicated and there are always more kind of little details that you hadn't thought about when you're just thinking about it from the, the high point. So you feel confident that this is the path forward. What does the next year look like for you? Over the course of the next year, we're really going to be building out cryptonomics and working with partners to get many different fully hosted web-based wallets slash exchanges out there. We're going to gear the blockchain more toward the hosted web wallet rather than the downloadable wallet that we've used today. It will still be possible to download and run a full node on your own, but we're really going to be migrating toward many different hosted wallets over the course of the next year. So the types of people who would be running a full node wallet really are just going to be those three classes of people that we talked about earlier who are actually elected by the delegates, or rather who are actually elected by the stakeholders. Delegates and workers don't need to run it. Only the witnesses and anyone who wants to be you know, validated on their own just because they want to, or they're, they're trying to do extra indexing. So if you're going to build a block explorer or a hosted wallet, you'll probably run the full node yourself so that you can do all the extra indexes that you need to maintain. There's a major barrier to entry when you tell someone, hey, create an account, download this, and download gigabytes of data to your computer. We've recognized that 
as an exchange when we scale, our transaction volume and data rates are going to be much higher than a traditional blockchain, much higher than the average person is going to have. And if it is as wildly successful as we hope, average user will not be able to keep up with the bandwidth. Fortunately, delegated proof of stake keeps things decentralized. Control still lies with the stakeholders, and they pick who they want to trust and who's going to be nominated to do that. And of course, they can always run the node. But the average everyday user is not going to be running a full node at scale. We're really going to aim for ease of use of hosted wallets, light wallets, from the beginning, even though in theory it's still possible for everyone to run a full node. We need to design for the end game. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's episode was provided by Daniel and Adam. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens and Molkowski. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine. See you next time.